Natalie Wexer is a leading education writer who serves as a senior contributor at Forbes.com. She's the author of The Knowledge Gap, The Hidden Cause of America's Broken Education System and How to Fix It, which came out in August and which has received uh, excellent reviews. Ed Matthews, Washington Post education columnist, called it the best book I have seen on improving elementary schools. A widely published freelance writer, her articles and op-eds on education have appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Atlantic. She's also the co-author of The Writing Revolution, a guide to advancing thinking through writing in all subjects and grades, which came out in 2017. Please join me in welcoming our distinguished guest, Natalie Wexler. Well, thank you, Leonard, for that kind introduction. And thanks to both Leonard and Dana for inviting me here. Um, and thank you all for turning out. It's great to see such a large crowd um, to hear about a problem that you may not have heard about before and whose importance I think is hard to overstate. Um, but I thought first I would talk a little bit about how I came across this problem and why I decided to write this book, The Knowledge Gap. Um, about 10 years ago now, I got very interested in education reform. And there was a lot going on in Washington, DC, where I live. Um, we have almost 50% of our kids in Washington, DC go to charter schools. And I was on the board of a charter school. I got, went to every panel discussion of experts that I could attend. And I read everything I could get my hands on about education. It seemed to me, and it still seems to me, that education it was not only sort of intellectually fascinating, but it is incredibly important. Um, it is, I believe, uh, if we really want to advance social justice, social mobility, and end multi-generational poverty, education is improving education is absolutely necessary. And we have what is known as often the achievement gap in this country, which is essentially a gap in test scores between kids at the top end of the socioeconomic spectrum and towards the bottom end of the socioeconomic spectrum. And it's a very stubborn gap. Um, depending on which group of scholars you ask, it either has increased substantially in the last 40 or 50 years, um, maybe as much by, as by as much as 75%, or the, the best case scenario is it has simply stayed the same over 50 years. Um, and it's equivalent to about three or four years' worth of education. So it's a substantial gap. And it's not even as though there's a gap, but maybe all boats have risen. If you look at the achievement of 17-year-olds, that has not budged in the last 50 years either, although it's improved somewhat at lower grade levels. But you know, the point of education is not to produce fourth graders or even eighth graders who can ace a standardized test, right? So high school is important. And so after a while, I started to have a background in journalism. I started writing about education, learning even more about it. But there was one mystery that I really wanted to solve. Um, and that was this. At, at the elementary school level, things were looking pretty good. You'd go into model classrooms. There would be tours. And the kids all looked engaged and eager. And the test scores appeared to be rising. Middle school was a little bit rougher, but things seemed to be improving. But then high school was a disaster. I mean, even the model classrooms that they would take us groups of education reformers into, there would be kids asleep with their heads on their desks, or there would be 
very few kids in the classroom because they hadn't bothered to show up. These are, I'm talking about high poverty high schools. And the test scores were completely stagnant. Um, so the question in my mind, the mystery was, what's the problem with high school? And I'm not the first to ask that question. Education reformers have been asking that question at least since 1983 when the modern education reform movement began with a report called A Nation at Risk. Uh, and Bill Gates focused on high school. People are still asking, what's the matter with high school? So I decided to volunteer. I, I thought I'd help some students at a high poverty high school with their writing, um, which was pretty naive of me. Um, I, first thing I discovered was they weren't getting any writing assignments. So, and I then discovered that they really needed a lot of instruction in writing, and it was, I was not adequate to that task. But the other thing I discovered was I would bring in things for them to read to have them write in response to, and they couldn't understand these articles that I was bringing in, which seemed to me to be fairly straightforward. They didn't know about things like the Supreme Court, for example. They didn't know what that was. They, they didn't know words like admirable. I mean, some of them did, but some of them didn't. Um, or the concept like percent. Um, and I remember asking a teacher there who I'd gotten to know, these were 10th graders. I said, what have they been doing for the past 10 years? I mean, there was nothing wrong with their brains. So what? And he, I remember him saying, we ask ourselves that question all the time. So the mystery had only deepened. And um, I'd like to say that I just figured this out all by myself, what the, what the answer to this mystery was. That's not how it happened. In fact, um, I, it was kind of accidental. I happened to be talking to a veteran educator who was a friend of mine. And long story short, um, she explained to me that in elementary schools, we're not even trying to teach kids anything substantive which I had a hard time understanding at first. I was like, well, what, what, what are they doing? Um, so that set me on uh, a path of investigation. Um, and what I ended up discovering was what everybody told me was the bright spot in education, elementary school, was actually where the problems really begin to a large extent. The problems that become so apparent in high school do not begin there. Um, so what is it about elementary school that's a problem? Well, um, we have always spent a lot of time in elementary school teaching reading. Makes sense. Kids need to read. Uh, but I want to be clear about this. There are two different aspects to reading. Uh, one is decoding, uh, just figuring out how to sound out words. So that is a set of skills that need to be taught explicitly. And you know, first, you have to hear the, the individual sounds in words, and then you have to connect those sounds to letters. Uh, there are a lot of problems in this country still with the way we teach decoding. Um, we we often, usually are not teaching it in a way that really corresponds to what scientists have found works. But I'm not going to talk about that. I'm going to talk about the other aspect of reading. So I'm going to assume that you have a, a fluent decoder. And the other aspect of reading is comprehension. And how, so we spend a lot of time in elementary schools and beyond teaching reading comprehension. So how is that done? Generally, that is viewed, comprehension is viewed as a set of skills. Skills like finding the main idea, making inferences, comparing and contrasting. And teachers uh, will model those skills. And then the other aspect of this is 
that students go off to practice those skills on books that have been determined to be at their individual reading levels. So that's the, the two components of this. Um, and those individual reading levels may be years below the kid's grade level. So you might, teachers will periodically give kids brief comprehension tests, and the teacher might say to the, the kid, okay, you're a level L. Well, that's a second grade level. The kid might be in fifth or sixth grade, but he or she is told, directed to a basket of books that are at level L and said, okay, this is, those are the books you can use to practice your skills. And neither the modeling of the, 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 the skills nor the practicing of the skills is connected to any particular content. The teacher will choose a book not for what it's about, but for how well it seems to lend itself to demonstrating, you know, determining the author's purpose or sequence of events or whatever the skill of the week is. And then the basket of books is arranged, again, it could be a random variety of topics, um, and it could be fiction. They've been determined to be at a certain level because of the, the length of the sentences, the length of the words, things like that. So there's really no particular coherence in terms of topic or content. And the theory is that if, you, if a kid practices those skills at books that she can read pretty easily on her own, she'll get better and better and she'll move up this ladder of text complexity and catch up to where she needs to be. And if you can find the main idea in a second grade level text, you get really good at that, you can find the main idea in a high school level text too. So the problem with this theory, which is nearly universal uh, in American, American elementary schools and beyond, is that it doesn't correspond at all to what cognitive scientists have found about how reading comprehension actually works. What cognitive scientists have found is that these skills, like finding the main idea, they're not really skills. It's not a skill like riding a bike or playing tennis or decoding words, where if you just keep practicing it, you get better and you can apply it generally. Instead, those skills really depend, or the, your ability to find the main idea of something, really depends on how much background knowledge and vocabulary you have relating to the topic. So, um, for example, there was an iconic experiment done back in the late 80s where researchers went into, uh, they took a bunch of junior high school students, and uh, the idea was to test what is more important, general reading comprehension skills or knowledge of the topic. And they chose the topic of baseball because they figured there are a lot of kids out there who know a lot about baseball, but they're not generally good readers. And they gave, they divided the kids into four groups depending on how well they did on a standardized reading comprehension test and how much they knew about baseball. And then they gave them a passage describing a baseball game and they tested their comprehension. And what they found was the kids who knew a lot about baseball all did pretty well, they did quite well when they tested their comprehension of this passage about baseball, regardless of how well they had done on the standardized reading comprehension test. And the kids who didn't know much about baseball all did pretty poorly. And in fact, the kids who were supposedly poor readers, according to the test, did significantly better than the kids who were supposedly good readers who didn't know a lot about baseball. So it really was baseball knowledge that determined how they did when their comprehension was tested. And that study has been replicated in a number of other contexts. So um, to some extent, I think this is common sense. You know, if, if you, any of you tried to read uh, one of the readings that I sent out, that Leonard sent out links to, I, you may not have understood what it was about, the last one. 
Does anybody want to hazard a guess about what, what was that article about? Cricket. cricket. It was this, uh, you know, I mean, if you were a cricket fan, it was going to be pretty easy to read. If, if, like me, you don't know anything about cricket, it was pretty impenetrable. And similarly, and so that's like, that's the baseball study right there. Um, and similarly, you know, if you, if I tried to read the abstract of a scholarly article on, say, microbiology, which I know, or molecular biology, what, you know, something I know nothing about, I am going to have a very hard time making sense of it. I think that, that's pretty obvious. What's not so obvious, maybe, is how much some kids don't know about the world, how much knowledge and vocabulary they lack. Now, that's not true of all kids, of course. What it, it tends to be true of kids coming from less educated families. Kids from more highly educated families are immersed in sophisticated knowledge and vocabulary pretty much from birth. Um, and the others rely on school for that knowledge, generally. I mean, they have, all kids have knowledge, but the kind of knowledge that's going to help you in school, um, kids from less educated families are just less likely to have that. And they start out school with that less of that knowledge and vocabulary. And what happens is the situation, the gap between them and their luckier peers expands for every year they're in school. Because the kids who start out with more knowledge and vocabulary keep reading, they're able to read more sophisticated texts. And uh, when they read those more sophisticated texts, they are continuing to absorb more knowledge and vocabulary. Because one thing about knowledge of the topic is it doesn't just help with comprehension. It also helps with absorbing and retaining additional knowledge. There's a metaphor that knowledge is like Velcro. It sticks best to other related knowledge. So some of these kids are starting out with more Velcro, and they continue to acquire more and more knowledge as the years go by. Meanwhile, the kids who start out with less knowledge and vocabulary, if they're not getting it from school, if they're just reading texts that are pretty simple and easy for them to read, every year they fall farther and farther behind. And so, by the, this is, so why, are, why do things become so apparent, problems become so apparent in high school? Why do things fall apart in high school? Well, by the time you get to high school, if you have not been exposed systematically to history or science, you have crippling gaps in your background knowledge. And that is the case in many high poverty schools because unfortunately, um, the, the way we've set things up, and I'll talk a little bit more about this later, um, the kids who rely most on school to acquire knowledge are the least likely to get it there. And they may reach, they may, it's not just elementary school, but also middle school, they may have had really nothing but reading and math. And reading is largely this leveled reading. Um, so if you, and, and I've talked to teachers at high poverty high schools, and I've seen this for myself, if you get to high school and you um, have never had any history, and you don't really have a concept of the past, it's going to be very hard for you to understand a textbook about World War I. I mean, you may not know what Europe is. You may not know the difference between a city and a country, or a country and a continent. And this is not uncommon. Um, you may not be able to find the United States on a map of the world. You may not be able to find where you live on a map of the United States. And it's not because you can't learn these things. It's because you haven't been given the opportunity to learn those things. So that's how this relates to the high school problem. 
It also relates to what we call the achievement gap, the test score gap. And one thing that's important to understand about these standardized reading tests is that they don't try to test kids on any content they may have learned in school. In fact, test designers try to avoid that because what they're trying to do is test these general reading comprehension skills that don't really exist. Um, and so they don't want to advantage, like if they have a question on westward expansion, well, some kids might not have learned that yet, so they'll be at an advantage. So they try to uh, test things that kids would have picked up outside of school, passages on maybe a blizzard, there'd be a passage on that. Well, that's going to advantage kids in the northern part of the country, so um, we'll balance that with a passage on hurricanes. And, but if you're a kid who is just generally lacking in knowledge of the world and vocabulary, you are always going to be at a disadvantage. And if you can't read, understand the passages on the tests, you don't get an opportunity to demonstrate your skills, your ability to find the main idea or make inferences or whatever. Um, so. Essentially, those standardized reading tests, as one cognitive psychologist has said, are knowledge tests in disguise. Uh, but teachers look at those tests and they think, well, to equip my kids to pass these tests, I have to give them the skills that are being tested because the tests appear to be testing those very same skills that teachers are trying to teach. They ask you, read this passage and find the main idea. Read this passage and make this inference about what this means. So we have really doubled down more recently on teaching those kinds of illusory skills. Um, so once I stumbled across this problem, and I, I realized that this problem really underlies a lot of the other problems that education reformers and policymakers have been trying to attack. But I, I also realized that nobody was talking about this. I mean, I, as I mentioned, I'd gone to all these panel discussions and read all these things and talked to all of these experts in education, and no one had ever mentioned that this was a problem. They hadn't even mentioned that this was what was going on in elementary school. I'd been in lots of elementary school classrooms, and I realized I had not understood what I was looking at, and neither did a lot of other people. And it's not that no one has ever identified this as a problem. I, I did finally find a, a group of people who were very concerned about this problem and had been for decades, for about 30 years. But the problem was I realized they were just talking to each other. And this problem had been written about, but it had been written about in kind of dry, academic way. And I felt that somebody needed to write a book that would be journalistic and engaging, that would take the reader into classrooms, that would have real life people as characters, that would get this topic into the public conversation about education. And nobody else was writing that book, so I did. Um, and, and I'd say the, the response so far has, especially from teachers, has been very gratifying. I've heard from a lot of teachers who basically are just saying, thank you, thank you. Because they knew something was not working, they knew something was wrong, but they didn't necessarily know what else to do. But one reason I wrote this book um, was, I, I also have a background as a historian, and I wanted to know where did this come from? this approach to teaching reading comprehension. Because as an outsider to the education world, once I started sitting in elementary school classrooms and I understood what I was looking at, I mean, it's not intuitive that you would read kids a book about whales or something, and then instead of talking about whales, you'd say, okay, now let's talk about the author's purpose. Like, why would you do that? 
Um, and the kids aren't, we're actually more interested in talking about whales. That's what they wanted to talk about. But no, we're going to talk about captions or whatever. Um, I discovered this problem or this approach has very deep roots in, in how teachers are trained, essentially. Um, and it goes back really 100 years. It has to do with what's known as the as progressive education or sometimes constructivist education, which is the prevailing philosophy uh, in the education world. And one of the central tenets of that philosophy is that it is better for children to discover or construct knowledge for themselves than to have somebody stand up in front of them like I'm doing right now and just dump information on their passive brains and that, that they won't be interested, they won't understand it, it'll go right past them. And there is some truth to that. And so the way this connects with the, this approach to teaching reading comprehension is that teachers can feel, well, I'm not dumping information on these kids. I am providing them with the tools that they can use down the road to construct knowledge for themselves from what they read. So there, there is some truth to this. We all do need to participate in constructing knowledge for ourselves. But there's a difference between discovering knowledge and discovering information for yourself, the information you use to construct knowledge. And essentially what we've been doing is expecting kids to discover information for themselves. And when you're starting out with very little information about topics in history or science or very little information about the world, to expect kids to discover that information for themselves is at best a tremendously inefficient proposition. Um, so that is the, the deep roots of this. Um, and then more recently, as I, I've alluded to, um, start about 20 years ago now, we started making reading and math tests, the yardstick against which all progress is measured under No Child Left Behind. And, um, now it's been replaced by another piece of federal legislation, but testing has remained really as important um, in most states. Um, and I'm not against testing per se. I, you know, one thing that those tests did was to uncover some hidden inequities in our education system uh, among demographic groups. And you know, it, it, if you could get an A at one high school, and it you'd think you were doing just fine, but in fact, that A was not equivalent to an A at another high school. And so what the tests did was to reveal these inequities. But the tests did not tell us how to address them. And a byproduct of this testing was, as I mentioned, that the teachers and the administrators and the policymakers all looked at the tests and looked at the low test scores and thought the way to boost these test scores is to double down on reading and math and eliminate, in in, certainly in high poverty schools especially, marginalize or eliminate subjects like social studies, science, and the arts from the curriculum. And the irony is that those are the subjects, social studies, science, and the arts are the subjects that actually could boost reading comprehension by building knowledge. So we have really been shooting ourselves in the foot. Um, so the other reason I wrote the book was to figure out what can we do about this situation and where do we go from here? Um, and there are definitely things that, that we can do and that are being done. Um, and I, ideally, what we would do is we would train teachers differently. In this country, um, for one thing, schools of education have developed along a, a different path from the rest of academia. And so uh, what teachers are told about developmental psychology in schools of education 
does not correspond to what cognitive psychologists on the other side of the campus are teaching undergraduates about developmental psychology. Um, there are people like Jean Piaget who are, their work is being taught as gospel in schools of education and in a de department of psychology, they might think that was interesting intellectual history, but what Jean Piaget wrote has been substantially modified by more recent research, and that more recent research is not making it into the schools of education. So there's a lot of information out there that would really help teachers teach and help students learn that teachers are just not getting as part of their training. The other thing it would be nice to do in this country is to train, make sure that if you're gonna be, say, a fourth grade teacher, that you have the content knowledge you need for whatever it is that kids are gonna learn in fourth grade, and you also are well-trained in how best to deliver that knowledge to kids. In other developed countries that do better than we do on international tests, you can do that because they have a national curriculum that specifies the content at every grade level. We do not and we cannot in this country have that kind of a national curriculum. Um, so on a national level, that part that is certainly not going to happen. But there's a lot that can be done at the state and district level. And, and some of that is happening. And I would say um, the first thing, the first step is to have schools, districts um, adopt content-focused, knowledge-building elementary curricula. That is the starting point. Once you have that kind of curriculum in place, then you can train teachers, even once they're on the job, they can get training on how best to deliver that content and, and, and learn the content, really, along with their students. It used to be, really just five or six years ago, there were no such curricula. All of the literacy curricula for elementary school were focused on skills. But in the last five or six years, there are several new curricula that have been developed that instead of being organized by the skill of the week, they're actually organized by topics, topics in history or science or interdisciplinary topics. Um, and they each spend, they're, these are, they're different in, in the particular knowledge they cover these curricula, the particular approaches they take. But what they have in common is they spend at least a couple of weeks on a particular topic. You need to do that if kids are gonna absorb that knowledge and vocabulary. Right now what we do is we, you know, the teacher might read a book on clouds one day, a book on zebras the next, and kids never have an opportunity to really learn anything of substance. Um, the other thing that these curricula have in common is they all have the teacher reading aloud to the entire class um, from books that they couldn't read themselves that are higher than their reading ability. And that's important for two reasons. One is that written language is almost always more complex than spoken language. It has a different syntax, different vocabulary, and if kids are later on going to be understanding that written language on their own, they need to get accustomed to it. The other important thing is that kids can absorb more through listening, more sophisticated concepts and vocabulary through listening than through their own reading, on average through middle school. So we don't need to read aloud just to kids who haven't yet learned to decode. We need to keep reading aloud to kids beyond that stage so that they are exposed to these more sophisticated concepts and vocabulary and when it comes time for them to read more sophisticated text independently, they will have a bank of knowledge to draw on. The other thing I wanna just mention is um, it, it's not, I hope I haven't given you the impression that if you don't reach kids at the elementary level, Forget it, it's too late. Um, 
you know, there's nothing you can do. It is more difficult to address knowledge gaps at the high school level, but it can be done. Um, and the most promising way I've seen of doing that is to teach kids how to write, explicitly teach kids how to write about the content they are learning. Um, writing is potentially the most powerful lever we have for building knowledge. And I'll just briefly, um, I mean, I can return to this if people are interested in hearing more about it, but um, writing, unfortunately, hasn't been studied much by cognitive scientists, but they have studied other things that come into play in writing that are very, very powerful boosters of comprehension and, and retention of information. So, for example, one of these things is what's known as retrieval practice, or sometimes it's called the testing effect. And it's been studied mostly in the context of quizzing or self-quizzing. But the basic idea is if you try to recall information you have slightly forgotten, the process of trying to recall that information actually cements that information in your long-term memory. And that's what we do when we write. We are trying to recall, unless you're just copying a paragraph, you need to think and remember something that you knew, that you read, you heard. The other thing that comes into play is something called the protege effect. And that's been studied mostly in the context of having one student explain something to another student, teach another student. But the, what's at issue, what, what the effect derives from is explaining something in your own words, putting something in your own words. And that, again, is exactly what we do when we write. We have to put things in our own words. So we're recalling things, putting them in our own words. It's potentially so powerful that you know, if you don't have that other half of the Velcro for the new knowledge to stick to, this writing process can substitute for the missing half of the Velcro. The problem, the caveat is that writing is very, very difficult, way more difficult than we have recognized. We've kind of expected kids to just pick it up. We really have not taught writing explicitly. Um, it's more difficult than reading. For some reason, we have not studied it as much, but um, it's, you know, it's expressive rather than receptive. So it's really hard, and it's so hard for inexperienced writers that if you ask them to write at length, it can be really overwhelming because you have to juggle so many things, you know, everything from spelling and word choice to organization of your ideas. And that cognitive load is so great that your writing's probably not going to be very good, but you're also not going to have the cognitive capacity to really think much about the content you're writing about. Um, so you, you miss out on those potential powerful knowledge-building effects. Um, so the solution there, and this is something that you can do at any grade level. It, it, it's one of the few things that works at high, the high school level. The solution is to modulate that cognitive load by asking, not asking students to write at length if they still haven't learned how to write a sentence. And there are lots of high school students that cannot construct good, coherent sentences. So if you start at the sentence level, you're both teaching them how to write good sentences, and they will not write a good essay if they can't write a good sentence, but you're also freeing up space in, in their working memory, essentially, for them to think about what the content is and to build their knowledge. And uh, as Leonard mentioned, I, a couple of years ago, I co-authored a book called The Writing Revolution, which sets out uh, my co-author's method of teaching writing con and, and content at the same time. Uh, she is, she's the veteran educator who explained to me that elementary schools were not even trying to teach anything substantive. Um, and she also uh, developed this method of, of teaching writing. 
So um, I would just end, I, wanna, I do want to um, allow a lot of time for, for questions, but I do want to just end by saying, you know, the picture is not all bleak. Um, things are not going to change overnight, uh, but there is a growing awareness among teachers, among administrators, district leaders, even deans of edu education schools to some extent, that we really do need to stop focusing so much on these largely meaningless comprehension skills and start giving access to knowledge to all kids, as starting as early as possible, and especially those kids who need it most. So I will now turn it over to you guys. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that extraordinarily lucid and thought-provoking presentation. Uh, it really does great justice to the kind of research you've done and raises exactly the kind of questions that I know a lot of educators have been grappling with and to which they have not found sufficient answers. May we please have the first comment or question? Oh, yes. Thank you very much. That was fascinating. Um, I'm interested in so the content approach um, that you're talking about in building knowledge and these building blocks of knowledge. I'm interested whether in the ideal situation then that content, that knowledge is coming from the teacher or there needs to be an effort on the part of the teacher to get a sense of where the student is and to build on where that student is. Uh, and if that's the case, are we moving towards another catchphrase that I've been hearing recently that is individualized learning? And what does that mean? Yeah, um, well, thanks for asking that. Um, I, I think, you know, um, there is a lot of talk about personalized learning or individualized learning, but um, it's, and, and there is, there is room for that, there's, there's a space for that, but what we have right now is really we have tracking in elementary school and, it, and, and that's what personalized or individualized learning can become if you're not careful. The important thing is to give all kids access to the same content and they may respond to it in different, at different levels. I mean, if you're asking them to write about it, one kid might write a paragraph, another might write a sentence, another might just find an idea you know, in the text somewhere. But I, I think it is really dangerous and, and, and unfair to certain kids to uh, compartmentalize them. And it, and it destroys the community of the classroom if kids are not all accessing the same content. It's true that there are going to be variations in background knowledge, but um, I think the best way to deal with that is to you know, provide the same content for all kids usually. And it doesn't have to be a lecture. I mean, one of the things I did for the book was I followed a couple of elementary, early elementary classrooms through a school year. Well, actually, it turned out to be three because I got kicked out of one classroom, but that's another story. Um, but the idea was one classroom that was skills-focused using the, the standard approach and the other that was using a content-focused knowledge-building approach. And in the content-focused classrooms, this particular curriculum it consisted of this, the teacher reading aloud to kids essentially stories and pausing periodically for, to check for comprehension and to ask good questions that would get the kids thinking about what 
they were listening to. And not, not every read aloud, but I would say nine times out of 10 when I was in that classroom, the kids were fascinated by the read aloud. So that, you know, yes, there's going to be some kid who's already familiar with, you know, the Greek myth of Daedalus and Icarus, maybe, <laughs> and some kids who aren't. But um, even the kids who've already heard something about it, they're not going to be, they, they can still be engaged. And it's better to err on the side of duplicating information for a few kids than assuming a lot of knowledge that may not be there. Because kids don't always raise their hands and say, excuse me, you know, what does that mean? I was in a, another second grade classroom uh, that where the, the teacher, this is why a curriculum is so important. In that classroom, the teacher was, gonna, was trying, it had, he'd been using a skills-focused approach, but, and actually this was the charter school where I was on the board, and because I kept hammering away at this at every meeting, um, they were trying to introduce some content. So this teacher, in an effort to introduce some content, had given all of these second grade kids, and this was an entirely low-income African-American population, um, something to read about slavery. Um, and it was pretty sophisticated. It was about the differences in, between, in slavery between the North and the South and the economics of slavery. And the kids, after 20 minutes of everybody struggling to read this, he discovered by accident that the kids did not know what slavery was. Uh, his, the, the assistant teacher said, you know, excuse me, I think some of our friends don't really know what slavery is. <laughs> and, uh, he said, raise your hand if you think the slaves got paid. And they all raised their hands. So, you know, you... you you really, it, it's better not to assume too much knowledge. And, and in many instances, especially with a population of English language learners, for example, you know, there, there are lots of things that kids are, are not going to know, which those of us, as somebody I interviewed for the book said, those of us on the privileged side of the knowledge gap, we're just, we just assume that they know those things. Um, so um, I think, you know, Yes, you, you do need to make sure that kids are being met at their own level, but you also need to ensure that they all have access to the same content. Uh, see, there, there are two people down there. But <laughs> uh, it, it was interesting to me what you were saying because I was at one time on a, the board of a not-for-profit with a distinguished jurist who wanted to put civics back into all the middle schools because the study of civics had been eliminated. And it's astonishing and pertinent to this group here because I think you can see the lack of that knowledge in our current political environment. And she was very successful in moving uh, schools state by state to put civics back in. And I think that goes to the content knowledge that you can't expect kids to become citizens if they don't know what even the word citizen means. Yes, I, I, um, I think you know, you're right. I think that, that education is absolutely crucial in, if a democracy is going to function. We, you know, Thomas Jefferson supposedly said that if he had to choose, um, I think between, uh, I can't remember what, something about newspapers, that he, you know, he felt that if you had to choose between, that newspapers were so really essential. But he added, only if people can actually understand the newspapers. So you know that is um, really crucial. I, and, and there has been a lot of talk, especially since the last election, about the importance of civics education. And I agree that you know kids do need to understand how our government functions. Um, but I, I think that the the groundwork for for kids, the necessary foundation that kids need to understand civics, 
is an understanding of history and geography, which they are not getting. It's not going to mean, the Constitution is not going to mean much to you if you don't know anything about the American Revolution, if you don't know who we, you know, won our independence from, as some college students, believe it or not, don't know. <laughs> um, and um, so I think this is related to another thing that I, I didn't get a chance to mention, which is a widespread belief among educators that history, in particular, is a developmentally inappropriate topic for children below fourth grade. This is, I, I have heard this over and over again. And parents, when I tell them this, I'm like, what? My kid loved history. You know, I took him to Williamsburg. And, um, this is a misreading, really, of Jean Piaget. Um, you know, they, they, teachers have been trained to believe that uh, History, kids will not get interested in things that are too abstract, too remote from their own lives, and that's what history is. In fact, history can be presented as a series of stories um, because really, in a large, in a large sense, it, that's what it is. And this second grade class that I followed through the year, those kids were fascinated by the historical topics that were covered, including, believe it or not, the War of 1812, which is a topic that a lot of adult, American adults could not tell you anything about. These kids, they had already, this was a curriculum they had been exposed to since kindergarten, so they already knew about Native Americans, European exploration, the colonial era, the American Revolution. They had no trouble understanding the issues in the War of 1812, and they were on the edge of their seats waiting to see who was going to win. Um, so that is one problem. If you don't have that background in history and, and geography, and the thing with the geography, which is also not getting taught, is there's this idea that, you know, if you can Google it, why should you teach it? Um, which is a really dangerous idea because, and this relates partly to reading comprehension, um, if you have to break off every few words or, or even few sentences to look something up, that interferes with your focus, your concentration, your ability to comprehend. That is giving you cognitive overload. Also, if you don't have the background knowledge to understand what you're reading, you may not have the background knowledge to understand the definition that you find on Google or wherever. And you may be getting erroneous information from Google or wherever. So, um, so you know, I think we need to return or we need to uh, adopt a view that it is, in fact, appropriate to start teaching kids history and geography at the elementary level. And then, yes, they'll be prepared to understand and get interested in civics. That was kind of a long answer. <laughs> yes, and then, then you. <laughs> she had her hand up before. If I, <clears throat> excuse me, if I understand correctly, the European model that you're describing is you have um, a national curriculum, is that correct? And then you have national testing? Yeah, I mean, these are the, the countries that do better than we do on, on international tests. That is the kind of system that they have. The testing is, we have, I mean, you might say we have national testing, but their testing is related to the content the of their curriculum. Because uh, the question I have in the context we're dealing with in our country is not only this disparity between the states as to what curriculum should be. In other words, you have a district that thinks one thing, you have a state, and then we're up against, you know, certain states don't even want to have apparently science and this whole cultural divide we have, and yet we have national testing. How do you see getting a curriculum where you're learning content that is going to be the content that's tested, just like your example of, um, of uh, cricket? I mean, I could be exposed <laughs> to everything under the sun, and you could, if you gave me a test on cricket, it would be... 
a catastrophe, right. I, it, no matter how much other information I had. So this question of content and its relationship from a disconnected testing system, how, how are we going to make that work? What is the content? What is agreed upon okay. content? So yeah, I think, so I think there are really two questions that you're asking, and, and one is, well, how do we decide on the content? And the other is, how do we then connect testing to that content? Right. <clears throat> the first question, um, you know, the, I, I get that a lot. Um, and it's not that hard, um, you know, there are different, it's not like there's a list of things that every kid needs to know. But we do decide on content at the high school level. All high schools try to teach content. There are standards and curricula, you know. So the problem is that when kids get to high school, if they, haven't, if they don't have the background knowledge they need to learn that content, then it doesn't work. So if we can decide on content at the high school level, why can't we do it at the elementary level? I, I think we can. And, and you know, sometimes people say, oh, but it's so, there are all these political battles. And there actually haven't been that many political battles. I mean, these elementary, newer elementary curricula that I mentioned that are content focused have been adopted in an increasing number of districts and schools. And there really haven't been battle, political battles over that. So, um, and even if there are, sometimes there will be, but we cannot let that be the reason we deny access to knowledge to kids who really need it. I mean, we have to, we as the adults have to just get over it, you know, <laughs> we have to figure it out. As far as connecting the tests to the content, um, I would point to, and, and this may surprise people, there's, there's a state that's been a real leader in this kind of thing, which is Louisiana, um, which you know, does come out at the bottom on, on um, national standardized tests. But um, over the past few years, they have really been pioneering in this area. And one thing they've done is the state has created its own content-focused curriculum, which it does not require schools to use. but some 80% of classrooms are using it. And now what they've, they've gotten permission from the federal government to do is they ha are piloting as an experiment a new kind of standardized reading test that is actually connected to the topics in the state English language arts and social studies curriculum. So this is a revolutionary development. It shouldn't be. You know, we're, we're finally going to be testing kids on what we've actually tried to teach them rather than just on what they might have happened to pick up. You know, um, And I think that will both help level the playing field for kids who are not picking up that much general knowledge of the world outside of school. And it will also, and this is very important, pro provide an incentive to teachers to actually focus on that knowledge because there's a saying, what gets tested gets taught. Um, and that, to a large extent, is true. And if teachers think what's getting tested are generally applicable reading comprehension skills, that is what they will try to teach. Uh, so, you know, I, I hope that other states it's, it's, will will follow Louisiana's lead in coming. It's going to take a little while, but in coming up with both a content-focused curriculum and tests that correspond to it. You know, I, I don't know anything about national testing. I know there was all this business with no child left behind in the testing nationally. How would the Louisiana model, I mean, how does that relate to then you have, do you, do you have national testing so, currently? I don't, so just don't know the state of the politics. The, the high stakes reading and math tests are not actually national tests. Basically, federal funding requires that states give 
reading and math tests in grades three to eight, and I think once in high school, although some states can substitute something else. But um, so the states get to choose the tests. And there, there are a couple of consortia of states that they're, they're kind of falling apart. The idea was maybe we could get all states or at least a, a significant number of states to give the same test and then we could compare, really compare one state to another. But that really hasn't taken hold. So it's very hard to com compare states because they are giving diff different tests. The tests do vary by state. There is another set of tests called the National Assessment of Educational Progress that they're given every, it's so complicated, they're, they're given every few years. And those are not used to hold teachers accountable or, you know, because they are given on a sort of random basis. What they do is they give you a rough idea of how states are doing in comparison to one another and how different, nationally, how different demographic groups are doing in comparison to one another. And, the main, the, the, the tests that get mo the most attention are the reading tests and the math tests that are given, it's called the nation's report card sometimes. But they do also give tests in history, science, um, writing, which, you know, and, and on those tests, those are the ones where we've really seen very little progress because it's much harder to sort of game those tests. So on those tests, about a third of students overall test proficient or above in reading, and only about a quarter test proficient or above in writing. So um, that's, those are the national tests. Um, yes. Given what you're saying, it would seem knowing that the state dictates the policy as far as the content, what you what you teach, and the structure of what's provided during an educational day, if that's true at the state level, then per perhaps there's an opportunity in two levels, one at the local level, where teachers have some latitude in deciding how they teach and what else they introduce, and then also at the state policy level, where they decide, they, they are the ones who decided to eliminate art and phys ed and those programs. So, in California. In California? Well, in California. See, I'm not that familiar with California. I mean, in most, so, so I'm sorry, did you, did, did you want to say anything else? Oh, no, I was just curious, uh, because I think what you're saying is, is, is really important and relevant, and I'm thinking in terms of tackling a problem, I'm process-oriented and a policy structure-oriented, so I'm thinking, okay, if this is true, if policy is dictated at the state level, and certainly it goes down to the district level, and there might be some latitude, but not a great deal. When it gets to the district and the local level, then it would seem that the, the greatest latitude of introducing how, the application of how they do what they do might change slightly, even though they know they have to teach so many hours of math and so many hours of reading and so on? Well, in, actually, generally speaking, the state has very little control over what actually happens in classrooms. I mean, they, some states may adopt textbooks. Um, they may, I mean, they have standards, but the standards are often quite vague or 
encyclopedic, so they don't really mean much. Um, and then some states, I think California is one, uh, adopt textbooks or recommend textbooks. For, they have a recommended list. But the thing is, teachers have always been able to close their classroom doors and teach in whatever way makes sense to them. So, and, and in, uh, one thing that really surprised me when I started looking into what really is going on is in many instances, elementary school teachers are told, you create the curriculum. Or they're trained to feel that, that really a good teacher creates his or her own curriculum. So, and this has become especially true, um, a couple of factors. One is the Common Core coming in, which I can talk more about. But uh, teachers realized that the textbooks that said they were aligned to the Common Core were not really aligned to the Common Core. So they needed to find other materials. And the, the internet has made it very easy for teachers to do what they've always done to some extent, which is to tweak or uh, supplement whatever textbook or whatever curriculum they're supposed to be using. And so it's gotten to the point where there was a RAND survey that showed that 90-some percent, certainly of elementary school teachers, resort to Google and Pinterest and websites like teacherspayteachers.com to create their own curriculum. Um, so we really don't have, there is not that kind of top-down control that I think you're assuming there is in well, most places. That's my understanding from family members who are teachers. I, I, I worked in somewhat in the system in Sacramento, so there was a great deal of dictating structure mm -hmm. that came down from Sacramento. Mm -hmm. um, At what grade maybe level? That's, maybe that's changed. Uh, well, definitely to, to the district level, but where they would dictate um, what subjects you teach, how many minutes you teach them. They would mm -hmm. even uh, recommend um, actual textbooks. Mm -hmm. So uh, that, knowing that, it seems, well, for instance, your um, suggestion that more history needs to be taught, you know, that's one place that putting more history emphasis back into the program could happen at the state level. And that's not impossible to do, but it no. both need to happen. I yeah, think. and I mean, and so, you know, it's very hard to make generalizations about education. We've got over 14,000 school districts in this country, and, and they are all different, and the states are different. But so I, what I know most about is Washington, D.C., um, and I can tell you that the district, the, the public school central office has said schools will spend 30 minutes a day or 45 minutes a day on social studies or science, and I've been in schools where they say, oh, we just, we don't do that. I've also talked to teachers, and, and I know this is you know, not uncommon, a teacher is supposed to be teaching both English language arts and social studies, for example. But as one fourth grade teacher told me, she said, well, you know, I mean, I know what, the, what they're gonna need for the test are their reading comprehension skills, so she doesn't really do much with social studies. Even when she does teach social studies, she focuses mostly on the comprehension skills. And she said, you know, well, you know, what's gonna be on the test isn't gonna be about, you know, sedimentary rock or where the Navajo lived or anything that you know we've, we're supposed to be covering. So you know, it's, it's, um, it, teachers are going to make a lot of decisions depending on what they think is going to be tested. Um, and, and administrators, building level, school level administrators, who certainly in DC, they're under a lot of pressure to raise test scores. So they have eliminated, even if the district, if the central office says, you need to spend time every day on social studies or science, they just don't do it. 
So I, I, I'm sure it varies from locale to locale. And I know, I think in California, teachers are not, their evaluations don't, the, the test, their students' test score growth doesn't get factored into their evaluations. Um, but in, in DC, students' test score growth does get factored into teacher evaluations, so it makes them even more aware of the tests. Yes. Oh, um, and I, I, I keep looking at this. Next time, I'm going to look at this side of the table. But <laughs> for this next question, oh, sorry. Hi, thank you for uh, being here. Um, I have uh, a comment and then I also have a question. So my comment is about content and your experience with the content. I know this is a very, what I'm going to say is very oversimplified, but this is a true scenario. Um, a friend of mine's daughter was taking a test, and on the standardized, te standardized testing, there was the word greyhound to some semblance. In her experience, you know, greyhound, it eventually was talking about a dog, mm -hmm. but that's not her experience. Sure. Her experience with it is a bus or Absolutely. whatever. So I'm just saying that it's also important about the experience of who's taking the test. Oh, it yeah. doesn't necessarily mean that they're not intelligent of that. So I don't know that that's always taken into consideration is the experience of what they're looking at in terms of that, so I think that's really something to take into consideration. Um, and the next in my question is to, can you speak to um, how we could use the preschool um, tools and efforts to reduce the, um, the knowledge gap? Could you speak to that? Sure, and um, your story about the Greyhound reminds me of, um, uh, there was the, the head of a school in, in New York, in the Bronx, who was, uh, and, and he does have a, his school does have a content-focused curriculum. One of his students, after she took a standardized test, she said, you know, I think I did okay, but what does rugby mean? And when he asked her to write it down, it was the word rugby, which of course she, I mean, there was some passage that mentioned rugby, and she'd never heard of that, so. No, that's definitely a problem. Um, on your question about preschool, um, so preschool's really, important. There's been a lot of attention on preschool and college, <laughs> and high, preschool, high school, and college. Um, but the problem, you know, and, and kids can start kindergarten if they've gone to a good preschool at an advantage. The problem is there's a well-documented phenomenon called preschool fade-out. And that so those gains that they had start with in kindergarten fade out by third or fourth grade. And the reason I would posit is that you know they, they may have been getting their knowledge built in a good preschool curriculum, but if then all they're getting in elementary school in first and second and third grade are these comprehension skills, then and their knowledge isn't being built, you know, it's not like you're done with pre at preschool. You have to continue that building of knowledge and vocabulary or you will lose those gains from preschool. There may be other gains from preschool in terms of, you know, um, they, they, there have been some really longi longitudinal studies that show that a good preschool can lead to you know, more stable family life or better jobs and things like that. But you know, we could do so much more to build on those gains that we're providing in preschool instead of then letting them largely fade away. So yeah. Um, kind of a two-part question. Uh, how important would you say, uh, from your research or experiences that you witness, is the student's willingness to learn and close that knowledge gap? And do you find a correlation uh, between the bigger the gap, the less willingness to close it, uh, essentially? Well, sure. I mean, I, I think this is why 
elementary school is so important is that kids, you know, they really like to learn stuff. I mean, if you present it in an engaging way, they're not asking primarily, you know, like, what does this have to do with my life? Or, or you know, wh why should I learn about ancient Egypt? They're like, give me a good story, and I'm, I'm there. Um, so, and and we, instead of exploiting that, we say, no, 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 we're not going to tell you about ancient Egypt because you have to work on your reading comprehension skills. And as I say in the book, it's like kids are clamoring for broccoli and spinach, and we're saying, no, no, you have to have a steady diet of donuts. Um, so we're, we're really missing that, that opportunity. And then, of course, yes, if you get to ninth or 10th grade and you know, you're being asked, this other knowledge gap is between what we assume kids are going to know in high school or beyond and what they actually do know. And it's very discouraging if there's a huge amount that your textbook assumes you know and you don't know it, you're really more likely to give up. So uh, you know, you, I think there are always going to be teenagers who say, what does this have to do with my life? Why should I learn this? But um, if they've already acquired a fair base of knowledge, then we, I think we'll have a better chance of convincing them, that, hey, this is really interesting. And we can talk about it at a higher level that you might find more engaging if I don't have to explain to you all of the things that you don't understand about that, that is assumed by this text. Thank you. I appreciate all your comments. And um, so my day job is I'm a high school librarian. And if you want to start a you know 100-thread diatribe on a professional school librarian listserv or social media working group, start talking about leveled readers, especially yeah. at the elementary level. And um, the issue is often both that so many elementary schools have closed their school libraries and focused on classroom libraries instead. Um, and then um, those classroom li libraries tend to focus on leveled readers. Mm -hmm. um, and even if there is a school library, um, the classroom teacher tries to control um, what the student can check out. Yeah. Um, and school librarians are constantly fighting with classroom teachers about allowing students to choose books based on interest, curiosity, um, and not based on your level L. Um, and so that's a constant battle that's going on. And I'm wondering if you can talk, you're talking about building uh, classroom knowledge, but what about, is there an importance to building your individual knowledge as a young student um, based on your own personal interests that may or may not correspond to what's going on uh, on a whole class level. Yeah, and, and what you're saying reminds me of a story I read somewhere online, uh, but I, from a reliable source about kids going into the school library with their reading levels pinned to their shirts. So if they tried to check out a book that was a level P, but their shirt said level M, then they were told, no, 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 you, you can't have that book. Um, but of course, yes, there there's definitely room there. There should be a time in the day or for kids to read whatever they want. Um, you know, it might be something that's at their level or it might be something they happen, you know, the whole idea of levels is just a, a mirage. It's, it's, as we know from the baseball study, if, if a kid knows a lot about, you know, horses and wants to, then, then he will be able to read a book about horses that's at a higher level than if it's a book about whales and he doesn't know anything about whales. So, um, they, yes, kids should be 
and allowed to pursue their own interests, their own curiosity, and to read books that just for fun. Um, I think, though, there was a tremendous emphasis, and this is part of teacher training and just the sort of ed ed the education world philosophy, that choice is really crucial, really fundamental, that kids, I mean, this, of course, their choices are constrained by their reading levels, but within the reading level basket, they should get to choose whatever they want to read. Um, and I, I, yes, choice is important, but for a lot of kids, they don't, there's a lot of stuff they could get really interested in that they don't yet know about. And so to just say, oh, they should follow their interests really shortchanges them. Um, if you don't know anything about Greek mythology, you don't know that you could be really fascinated by Greek mythology. And boy, have, have I seen kids get fascinated by Greek mythology. Kids who have, you know, uh, you wouldn't necessarily think that, you know, they would be, but they are. I mean, any kid can get fascinated. I was at a school when I was doing research for the book in Reno, Nevada, um, that was all low-income Spanish-speaking kids. And these kids, in second grade, they, they were learning about Greek mythology, and they became so entranced by Greek mythology that on the playground, the teacher told me this, said, you know, our kids on the playground, they don't play games with rules, and it's just kind of a free-for-all, but they had devised this game where they organized themselves into groups of Greek gods, and so a little girl would come to one group, and, and they would say, uh, we already have an Athena. If you want to be Artemis, we're good to go, but I think they need an Athena over there. I mean, so, you know, now those kids are really interested in Greek mythology. Going back to the Velcro, um, is it possible that kids arrive at elementary school with different levels of Velcro? Oh, yeah. And if so, it's, be, it's contributed because of environment, right? They, they acquire that because of the environment prior to arriving, correct? Yes. That's what we're going to decide on. Okay. Well, I mean, but then that doesn't mean... There's exceptions to that, obviously. Well, I think they're, they're, you're right that kids arrive in school with different levels of Velcro, if that's what you, you, know, you want to call it. We're going to use Velcro, yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and that has to do, I mean, there are a number of factors. I mean, wealthier parents who also tend to be better educated parents can, you know, they could take kids to Europe and they can take them to, you know, classes in music and things like that. Another factor that is found to be important is... Um, sort of patterns of dialogue between parents and children and mm -hmm. conversational turns. Yeah. So if kids are asked open-ended questions and you know th that develops their, their language abilities and that eventually translates into better literacy skills. But the thing is, I mean, yes, kids are gonna enter school with different levels of Velcro, but there is a lot more that schools can do than they're doing now to provide the, the kids are missing some Velcro to provide them with that Velcro. Right, right, right. It's just, it, it's very uh, um, amusing to me that I've had students at the university who have had uh, terrible environments to grow up in, but became very good students. Mm -hmm. Their parents had no interest in them studying or, or having a conversation with them, but yet when they got to college, they achieved at a very high level. It's really astounding to me to see those exceptions on occasion. And, yeah. and I think we're going to see that. We also see that in elementary school, I'm sure. Sure. 
sure. Uh, there, there are always exceptions. It's just, you know, they shouldn't be so exceptional. Is, is yeah, they, they have more Velcro than we thought, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, and then the second thing I was going to mention was I was happened to be at a, a, a lecture yesterday by our vice chancellor at UCSB, and he was talking about the challenges at, at in higher education and what UC is faced with in terms of the students. And one of the things that was amazing to me is we have students, it's so competitive to get into that school as a freshman, I don't know if you're familiar with the UC system, um, that they get in with 4.9s and almost perfect scores on the SAT. But yet when they come in, um, and there is an adjustment period, but they have a hard time passing even the survey classes in some of the areas that they've done well in in high school, AP physics and then they take a survey class at the university in physics, and all of a sudden, you know, the university is discovering now that can we correlate grades and test scores with achievement in higher education? Not always. Mm -hmm. it, it's really a challenge. And uh, so I think that when he was talking about the budget and the things they're putting money into at the university, that was a major issue for the universities the UC mm -hmm. system, mm -hmm. in, in what kids are going to do well in that setting in terms of achieving, even if they've taken all of the AP and done well on their standardized test scores. Mm -hmm. um, not always true. Yeah. Well, I would think that the AP might be a better predictor because it's less of a test of sort of just general knowledge and there's more writing involved. and. And that's, those are the, the, you know, being able to write about what you've actually learned is what you really need to do well in college. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of surprised to hear that there's not that much of a correlation between AP scores and college Well, he's not seeing it. He's mm -hmm. not seeing it. But I will say that, you know, I was there for 30 years. I will say my students who go to UCSB, they are very, very good writers. And I don't know where it came from, but they are very, very good writers. And those are the ones that do achieve and do do, do well. And um, so I think that's really the basis for success in higher education. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. And I think um, our emphasis on multiple choice and, you know, in this sort of, uh, you know, what I, as I mentioned, when I got to this high school where I thought I would help kids with their writing assignments for class, I discovered they weren't being assigned any writing for class. And I think that's true in a lot of high schools because high school teachers, you know, they, they get pages of incoherent prose and they don't know what to do with it. And they don't feel like it's their job to teach basic writing skills. Um, and they haven't been trained. Very few teachers have actually been trained well in teaching writing, even uh, English teachers. So, you know, they don't know what to do, and they kind of just don't assign writing. And then nobody and nobody ever learns to write. Um, and, and I've certainly talked to college level professors and instructors, expository writing instructors have a really tough job, and they're like, how are we gonna? What are we gonna do with this kid who does not know how to write? Thank you. I was wondering about your thoughts regarding the prevalence of technology where most kids today that I, I believe would maybe have technology in their pocket or certainly in their home, if that can help close the knowledge gap. Well, it's interesting you should ask that because I've just finished um, doing a piece for the MIT Technology Review on education technology. And it, 
first I, I, was, I said, well, you know, I, I don't really have a very rosy view of education technology. And it turned out that the editor had an even more jaundiced view of education technology than I did. I mean, yes, kids have, you know, phones and, and, um, and there's a certain, you know, level of technological savvy that we need everybody to have keyboarding skills and all of that. But what's happening in education is there is a lot of enthusiasm for education technology for the sake of education technology and a lot of money being invested in it. And there's very little evidence to support either that it's, increase, in, that it's increasing achievement in most areas or that it's narrowing the achievement gap. I mean, there's a lot of, also a lot of worry about this digital divide, as it's called, so that, that more affluent kids or more affluent adults have more access to the technology and the internet than uh, lower income individuals. But what's, what the evidence shows about education technology is, uh, first of all, that it, moderate amounts can be helpful in certain subjects, like math uh, and, and foundational reading skills like phonics, things where there's a defined, yeah, sure. It depends on the, the kids. I mean, as I mentioned before, if um, you know you you may look something up, but you may not understand the, what the definition that you find. And what are they looking up? I mean, I think there there are kids who know a lot about popular culture, and um, but they may not know much about history or geography. They're probably not looking those things up. And I think we have to ask, like, what is it that we want high school graduates to know in order to be able to understand a newspaper and exercise their responsibilities as citizens in a democracy? And the things that kids are looking up on their phones may not be the things that will really equip them to do those things we want them to be able to do. So it's, it's not a substitute for actually teaching kids the kinds of stuff they need to know. Is, is that more addressing your question? Yeah. We'll have to see. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, when I saw you were speaking, I before I read the articles, I thought you were going to talk about zero to three-year-old oh. and the emphasis on that. And I'm fascinated by what you're saying, but are you saying that the zero to three, maybe that's overemphasized as the reason for the gap? Well, you know, I mean, I don't know if it's overemphasized because it is really important, but it's not like if we get kids, if early, you know, childhood education or zero to three is, then we don't have to worry about them again until college, you know? <laughs> I just feel that it's both and. I mean, we have to be concerned about zero to three and three to five and then, you know, five to 18. Um, and we, we have been, I think that, all of this focus on universal preschool, it's, it's, it's kind of given people a false sense of like, okay, then we've solved that problem. That's all. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't deny that zero to three is important. It's crucial. It's all crucial. <laughs> Um, one of the things I'm thinking about is, um, you know, f following up on the zero to three is that idea of how early care and edu educators interact with children and bringing that up into the elementary school. 
and I, I have this idea that <clears throat> the one of the reasons that the content approach it really works is there's um, an ability for relational um, you know the teacher and the kids and all the kids in the classroom are having relationships with each other yeah. discussing it in the in the context of a relationship you learn mm -hmm. so I'm just wondering if that's a part of your research yeah I mean I think that's really important I didn't really focus that much on it but I, I certainly saw things that made me realize how important how how the content could affect the relationships both between the kids and the teacher and between the kids themselves. And this is one of the problems with using education technology is you've kind of got every kid in front of their own device and you lose that social aspect of learning. But for example, in the, the skills focused class, the first skills focused classroom I was in, um, the teacher was often frustrated with the kids because what, which they were not interested in what she was trying to teach them and they couldn't grasp it and so she would get frustrated. I explained this. I explained that fantasy is a subgenre of fiction and not nonfiction. These were first graders. Why don't you remember that? Or you know, I explained what that a caption what a caption is. You know, they just weren't interested in what the, a caption was. They wanted to know what the pic, what was going on in the picture. Um, whereas in the content-focused classroom, the, the kids were having these really rich discussions that, that the teacher was guiding, um, but they were bouncing ideas off each other. And I also saw, and this is another thing that I think is really important, um, teachers have told me when they've switched from this, this skills-focused approach to a content-focused approach that behavioral problems decreased significantly. And there was one kid in the content-focused classroom, it's a second grade classroom, who was is a bright kid, a really sweet kid, but he really loved attention. And so he would wander around the classroom and make weird noises with his lips. And um, the teacher would sometimes try to, you know, sometimes she would let him do that if, if he wasn't disrupting things. But a couple of times, you know, he got interested in what the class was talking about, and he actually made really significant contributions to the discussion. And you could see his behavior change. There was one thing in particular I wasn't there for, but um, he was the kind of kid who just loved pee and poop jokes. And, and and the teacher saw that this was the first time she'd been teaching this curriculum. She saw one of the topics was the human excretory system. <laughs> she was like, oh my god, why would they choose that for second grade? Um, but when she got and she she said she was you know told the kids now, I know that you can handle this, and we are all. Mature, and you know, <laughs> um, when, when she got to the point in the read aloud where it's the read aloud said that urine was actually cleaner than saliva, it was this kid who made the pee and poop jokes who raised his hand and asked thoughtfully, Well, does that mean you could drink urine? And she was like, Yeah, actually, <laughs> sometimes people have to do that. So, you know, this. It, it, it creates a community. It draws in kids who are, might otherwise be behavioral problems. It does, and it, you know, one of the things that uh, we are concerned about these days is what's called social and emotional learning, um, and and also growth mindset. And those are fine, but we really are not acknowledging the damage we do to kids' psyches every day. Millions of kids by telling them just do this and you will become a better reader, a better student. And when they do it and it doesn't work, they often feel they have no one to blame but themselves. And it, you know, and they think I'm in the dumb group. And, and that is so unnecessary. There, 
you know, there's so much wasted potential out there, but there's also so many damaged self-concepts out there. Yeah. Um, I think my question goes back to the issue of technology, but more so looking at the fact that advancements are leaning towards the use of um, AI, the artificial intelligence, and automating jobs, and one of those um, that they're looking at to automate is teaching. And I know that in countries like China, they're already starting to pilot programs that do that, where they're replacing a teacher with a robot or a computer. Um, so with this, like, do you think these technologies that are supposed to be efficient and innovative, do you think that they will, in the end, help this gap or make it bigger? Well, that, so that relates to what I was starting to talk about earlier about education technology. Um, well, one problem with, I, I think there, there are limited uses for education technology, and, and it's it, perhaps math, and not a lot of it. The, the evidence shows that the kids, students who get a lot of education technology exposure using devices you know, every day, that there are negative impacts across the board. But a moderate amount of technology can help with something like math or something like phonics. And you could maybe use technology for um, helping kids actually retain information. That I, I, software has been developed that calibrates like what, what is it that you need to review, what do you need to actually memorize, and, and the program could help with that. But one problem here is motivation. Um, you know, a kid is not going to be as motivated to perform for a, a machine as for a human being who the kid might actually admire, like, respect. Um, that, that's one problem. And um, there's also this problem of lack of agreed upon content. What is it that these, what is it that the software is trying to teach? Often what I've seen, if it's not, you know, math, it's these same old Comprehend, illusory comprehension skills, and it doesn't work any better. In fact, it works worse when it's a computer trying to teach those things because, you know, we were talking about making assumptions and what kids already know, and um, I, I've seen kids at computers, the computer assumes that they understand a word and they don't understand that word, and if I hadn't been there, that kid would have sat in front of the computer for I don't know how long, because. So the, the most egregious example of this, and this shows sometimes how much vocabulary some kids are lacking. So this was actually a math software program, and this was a school that prided itself on its one-to-one -one policy. Every kid had an iPad. This kid happened to be sitting at a computer, but the teacher was working with a small group elsewhere in the classroom, and the kids were supposed to be basically just all working on devices. And I, I noticed a couple of kids who were having problems, but this one that in particular was looking at what seemed to be a fairly simple problem. It was a number line going from 80 to 90, and the question was, what number comes before 85? And the kid would click on 86, and then 87, 88, and kept getting error messages. And I thought, well, maybe the numbers are too big. So I drew him a number line from 1 to 10. And I said, what number comes before 5? And he pointed to 6. And I realized he didn't know the, what the word before meant. And when I explained that to him, he immediately clicked on 84. But the, you know, so a teacher would have picked up on that, but the computer was just like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Yeah. 
Um, so we work with a, I work with a lot of teachers in the county, and um, one of the, the problems they face is that in a given classroom of over 30 kids, they have students who are three or more grade levels behind, they have students who are at grade level, and then you have high-performing students. And so delivering instruction to that variety of skill set is a challenge. And then on top of that, um, referring to this knowledge gap, teaching content and, and trying to level the playing field and, and feed knowledge to um, a classroom of students who struggle at all different levels. And then when summertime hits, our lower income students are losing two to three months of learning while their middle to upper income peers are attending you know, summer learning programs and they're vacationing and going on museum trips. And so from a, an educator's perspective, it seems like there's this never ending cycle um, of trying to catch up and trying to get our lower income students or those who are, are not able to have those opportunities and advantages to, to you know, keep them from falling too far behind. Um, and I know that some of our educators rely on that individualized um, adaptive technology um, so that each student is receiving that type of instruction and scaffolded support that they need. So what would your advice be to a teacher who's relying on that adaptive individualized technology while trying to make sure that all of their, her students or his students are receiving the type of content and knowledge they need to be successful in, in those, you know, comprehension um, skill sets? Well, I, you know, I'd have to know what, um, what the software was that the adaptive technology was based on. I mean, if, as I said before, if all students are getting access to the same content, that's what's important, and I and it's very I know, especially at upper grade levels when you have really you can have a really wide variation in background knowledge, and um, it can be really challenging. But um, you know, if kids are being told you have to work on your comprehension skills at this computer, and it, it will adapt to your level of comprehension skill, that's a problem. Um, because they're not getting, that's, that's separating them off from the other, their peers who are getting access to different, more sophisticated content, and that's going to perpetuate the gap. So I would say, um, I mean, I, I actually, there was a, I was at a, a, an education technology company where um, the CEO was telling me what he sees as a role for technology is to um, help the teacher reach every student at that student's level, but not with different content. So said, for example, let's say everybody is reading the Declaration of Independence. Well, the way you, you make it accessible for kids who are able to, or at different levels, is you might have one kid write an essay about the Declaration of Independence, another kid write a few sentences about the Declaration of Independence, and another kid you might and, and this he was saying you could do through technology. Um, another kid might be um, asked to to find a, an idea, a particular idea, you know, in somewhere in the Declaration of Independence and highlight it. And that the beauty of the uses of technology here is that it's very hard for teachers in the moment in a classroom to differentiate in that way. Um, and also that it's invisible to the kids, so the kids don't know who's getting what 
assignment because they're all, you know, have their, their own devices. But that assumes that all of the kids are reading the Declaration of Independence. Um, so, you know, it, what, what tends to happen uh, in some environments, in like high school environments, is that the, the kids who are English language learners or whatever will get a simplified version of a text that, that the higher achieving kids are getting. And so the, the higher achieving kids might have a, a, a text that says something like, you know, the founders of our nation convened in 1787. And, and the kid who's an English language learner might get a text that says something like, Benjamin Franklin, Franklin started the country. Those are, those are not the same, that's not the same content. And in fact, the second one is inaccurate. So I think we just really need to be careful about um, exacerbating these knowledge gaps by trying to smooth the bumps for the kids who are, are facing the challenges too much. You know, we, we can't ask them to do things that they simply cannot do. Um, I mean, sometimes that's what high expectations get translated into, and everybody's disappointed. But if we can find a way to, to give them access to the content in a way that works for them, the same content, and get them to engage with that content in a way that works for them, I think that's our best hope. And it's easy for me to sit here and say that, I know. I'm sure that in the classroom, it's really challenging. But I think if we, if we separate, put, essentially put them on a different track, then you know, we're, we're never going to eliminate the knowledge gap. I mean, that, I think, is utopian. But we, we, can, we need to try to narrow it as much as we can. Yeah. Because the hour is oh. dawning. Oh. Um, perhaps we could take one more question. And then, uh, if you'd like, uh, some summary comments, or if you prefer, is it me? Two more. <laughs> the mic. That's one way of deciding. It's a, well, it's a quick follow-up. Um, we in Santa Barbara County have spent a good 10 years with uh, some curated technology and slowly but surely have inserted it into at least almost all the schools, all the public schools in the South County. And not to be in opposition or contrary to what you just said, they're very content-based in technology because the systems ask the kids during their one hour during the day that they're on these computers or, or iPads, um, what they're interested in. They're, they're, they maybe have half a dozen subjects. Granted, the entire classroom is not on the same content. And a lot of this is content-based to get better reading skills, because it really works with the younger, younger kids. But we've had some tremendous successes. And as of now, we have been virtually accepted into all the school districts in the South County. Um, it's, it's literally taken uh, a lot of money, a lot of labor, and 10 years. But we're seeing year, year and a half of progress with the kids who are performing the least. So there is potential here, and at least I believe that. Um, you know, I mean, without knowing more about that technology, it's hard for me to say. But I, you know, the technology that I've seen on reading in in like first and second grade classrooms and a little bit higher level than I've been in, you know, there'll be a, a selection of topics. Like I remember one was Diwali crayons. 
bananas, Barack Obama, and you could choose one, and then there would be comprehension questions. And you know, the 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 thing is, it is tricky to measure in progress and improvement accurately. Yes, you you might get better at answering questions about the main idea if you practice that a lot. But that doesn't necessarily mean that when you get to high school, you will have the, the base of knowledge and vocabulary that you need to do well there and beyond. So it's easy, it's always been easier to raise test scores at lower grade levels because the tests assume less background knowledge. And so it, it I mean, it doesn't mean it's nothing. It's just you've got to be very careful about premising um, you know, declarations of success on the basis of elementary level test scores because they may or may not mean anything really significant. Um, so I, I guess that's, that's all I can say about that. Let me uh, ask if you'd like to make any other concluding remarks uh, before we go to reception. Um, I guess I would just say, well, thank you for all of these very good questions. Um, and I think I would say that the trick here is we need to have a sense of urgency because there are millions of kids whose futures are being held back every day as long as this widespread approach continues. At the same time, we have to have a recognition that Building knowledge is a gradual cumulative process. We cannot expect necessarily results in even a year or two years, um, especially if we're going to look at those test scores, because it's really a crapshoot, um, those tests. Kids may or may not have the knowledge that's being asked for on those tests. Um, so we have to take a longer view and also retain a sense of urgency about engineering change. <laughs>